So there's this drive to be curious. And that is the underpinning of the architecture of being human. And the thing is, what does curiosity do? It makes you explore something. When you explore something, you're paying attention to it. When you're paying attention to it, it moves into working memory. If it's something that interests you, it moves from working memory into long-term memory. And if it moves into long-term memory, we can say you are expanding, growing, and learning as a human being. Today's guest on the Change Alchemist podcast is Todd Cashdan, who is a professor of psychology and a leading educator to the public. He received the 2010 Distinguished Faculty Member of the Year Award at George Mason University for his teaching and mentoring. He is the author of five books, including Curious, The Upside of Your Dark Side, Designing Positive Psychology, and he has a new book, called The Art of Insubordination, which he will talk about in a, an upcoming show. After receiving his PhD in clinical psychology in 2004, Todd founded the Wellbeing Lab at George Mason University, which has produced over 210 peer-reviewed journal articles on well-being and resilience, psychological flexibility, meaning and purpose in life, curiosity, and managing social anxiety. In Todd's own words, my life is devoted to the scientific exploration of uncharted human behavior and its practical application to improve lives. You are the, the Joe Rogan of Silicon Valley. Good. <laughs> so uh, welcome to the show, Todd. It is such a pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me here. Appreciate it. Let's talk about the well-being lab. I'd love to get your thoughts on why you got that started and how that's evolved. Yeah, I've been running this since I was a grad student at uh, University of Buffalo back in 1998. And then for the past 16 years at George Mason University. And essentially, my career got started off by studying anxiety disorders. I was interested in how people generate panic attacks. And we had this Hannibal Lecter mask we would put it over people's mouths of people who had panic attacks that were uncontrollable. We gave them 35% CO2, which basically, if you are susceptible for having panic attacks, you will have one right there in front of me. And I would sit behind them and ask them questions, whispering um, things in their ear that would give them nightmares. And we would see what predicts who develops a panic attack. And when I was doing this work, as a grad student, I realized that I wasn't really interested in when people develop panic attacks. I was interested is when you have them, what is it in the aftermath that leads you to not do the things that you want to do? And in, in some ways, I thought of this, you have these choice points. You've got these approach avoidance conflicts. Do I approach the thing that I desire? Or am I so afraid that I'm going to have these physical sensations that I'm going to fall apart and unable to function? or I'm worried what other people might think of me. And you have to decide what's the choice. And no decision at any moment matters. It's really kind of what you do in terms of the pattern. And this led me to thinking of like, I'm interested in people being willing to explore despite the presence of anxiety and panicky symptoms. And so it led me move on to studying well-being, curiosity, courage, creativity, love, friendships, as opposed to just studying anxiety. Perfect. And um, you mentioned curiosity and you have 
five books, including one called Curious. And you've talked about why it's important to be curious. What got you started on that book and what's got you started on all these books? You're very prolific. Uh, thank you. It keeps, keeps me sane because I have three daughters that take up the rest of my energy to make sure I have nothing in the tank when I go to sleep and I just conk right out. Um, curious was built off the same premise, which is if you experience discomfort with uncertainty and if you experience some low level of anxiety in your life in terms of, and it might be about, you're worried about your capabilities, you're worried about other people are threatening, you're worried about rejection and social persecution, you're worried about making a good impression on people, you're worried about things like the rise in authoritarianism, mm -hmm. political extremism in the country, whatever it is. When you allow that anxiety to override your thinking and your behavioral decisions, this was something that I wrote back in 1998 as a first year grad student. What happens to the residual unsatisfied curiosity of someone that's extremely anxious? And that question has really propelled myself to exploring maybe curiosity is one of these antidotes to being anxious. It's one of these antidotes to being defensive when you're in conflict situations or intense situations. And following that lead, just I discovered there's a whole body of research that's these isolated strands that people haven't been putting together before in terms of that this is a fundamental motive of being human. And that curiosity doesn't just lead us to lead to a sense of fulfillment in our lives, but it's really what allowed human beings to survive for 2.5 million years is that if when there isn't threat present, objective threat, you know, predators in the Sahara back, back a few million years ago, being at two o'clock in the morning and it looks like somebody might rob you and you're kind of unsure of who's dangerous and who isn't, when you're not in those kind of very clearly objectively threatening situations, the question is, what are you motivated to do as a human being? And the thing is, there's this thing called, John Cassiopo called it a positivity offset, is that when there's no threat, we don't just sit and, and, and act sedentary and eat Pringles and watch Dave Chappelle on Netflix. God forbid. Uh, and, and, <laughs> and just write our responses on Twitter. What we do is we have this little bit of a kind of push, this evolutionary push of, hey, go explore and see if there's something that you can learn and discover that might be helpful when it's a rainy day, when there's something that's dangerous, and build up your skills, knowledge, and wisdom so you can make better predictions about what's going to happen in the future. So there's this drive to be curious, and that is the underpinning of the architecture of being human. You do have some insights, uh, probably more now, on curiosity. With your background in psychology, you're a father of three. And I would imagine your kids are very curious, right? And they're probably more curious than an average 30-year-old uh, or a 40-year-old. What happens as you get older that you kind of leave your curiosity behind and you start conforming and you start focusing on one or two or three things you need to get done? I guess that's that's part of it. I mean, do you have to nurture curiosity? And if so, how do you do that? Yeah, it's a big question. I mean, there's, there's a couple of mechanisms at play. You touch on a few societal mechanisms where one of them is you have to think of, there's the beauty of mandatory education, particularly in the United States until you're 17, 18 years of age. In fact, going along with your thought, my nine-year-old who's in fourth grade was like, hey, dad, can I just drop out of school at any point in time? I mean, is that, 
And I was like, you could, but like, what do you imagine your life would be? So what would you be like at 13? What would you be like at 20? And we had this long conversation. So when you're 40 and you're close to my age, what do you think your life's going to be if you drop out at fourth and fourth grade? And what I didn't do was what most authority figures in society do with kids, which is say, it's illegal not mm. to go to school until the age of 18. Because that's not really what she's asking. She's really asking about like, how important is it really to go to school? And so there's two ways of answering answering this question with a child and one is about just saying this is the rule and this is how it's been and it's state mandated and the other one is really nurturing of let her like imagine all these different pathways of okay hey you get what if you did get to decide to go to school or not what would you do during the day i mean where would you meet friends how would you make money what would you do when mom and dad are busy that happens here this is the way that you get kids to think about how do I want to construct my life and who am I as a person versus just tell them there's a rule to follow. Don't ask where it came from and just know that I'm right because I'm taller than you and I'm older than you and you should be listening to me. And with that same line of thinking, why adults often show a drop in curiosity over the course of time is you spend so many years learning the explicit rules of how to behave. Here are the things you don't raise in conversation. Here are the things that you don't ask about another person. If you meet someone that's different from you, here's how you're supposed to behave today, which is different than the rules that were two years ago. That happens, you know, the rules are constantly shifting. And the fear of making a misstep, the fear of being ostracized from the group that you want to be part of or that, you're, or that you are a part of, and the concern about what your standing is, whatever group you identify with, whether that's the organization that you work in, whether it's being an alumni of a particular high school or college, whether it's being a New Yorker or a Virginian, whether it's identifying as someone that's an Apple user or a Dell user, a sports fan or a mixed martial artist, whatever groups that you identify with, you sort of learn the rules of what it means to be a good upstanding member and what it means to be a bad member. Because you see how people are socially punished when they kind of draw outside the lines. All of this helps with your social identity, but all of it prevents you from exploring and being curious because you're constantly concerned about whether I'm actually fitting in and you're spending less time of thinking about what is it that makes me unique. And so you do need to nourish of, we have these two competing needs, the need to belong and fit in and the need to stand out and be unique. And I think we spend a little bit too much time about the fitting in part and less time about our uniqueness despite all of the calls for diversity. There is a push-pull between those two, I would say, but let me throw this thought out, right? You take a Steve Jobs or a Mark Zuckerberg or a Bill Gates, they all dropped out of school. They pursued their passion. They were curious. They were unique. They didn't want to fit in. We can all agree they were one of a kind, but they were also very intelligent. So is curiosity only for the intelligent or are the others that are not so bright, not so unique, doomed to lead a life of mediocrity and conformity? This is such a good question. I'm so glad you asked it. There's a paper by the late Stephen Reese. He passed away over the past, mm -hmm. past year. Great motivational researcher. He had a paper which was about mental retardation and, the motiv the, and motivational patterns. And this paper basically explored is that 
by definition, this is a scientific term, mental retardation, you have a particularly low intelligence. There's certain problem solving skills and there are certain basic fundamental activities in daily life that you have problems with because of this low intellectual functioning. What he was focusing on in this article was that we spend so much time categorizing and label people that are low in intelligence. I mean, you, hear, you have this term, like you are now in the bin of mental retardation that we forget there are a whole, there's a whole profile psychologically of other qualities where you can be extremely high on. You can be extremely creative and mentally retarded. You can be extremely curious. You can be extremely high in perseverance. You can be extremely high in developing goals for yourself. You might need help in terms of the execution of those goals. You might need help in terms of breaking them down into smaller steps, but in terms of aspirations, in terms of persevering through obstacles, in terms of having a sense of agency that you believe you possess the energy to work forward and commit effort towards goals. These have nothing to do necessarily with what your intelligence is. And it's definitely not that for the province of people that have a 120 IQ or above. Um, but there is some research to show is that there is a correlation, a positive small correlation between creativity and intelligence. But when it comes to, to intelligence and curiosity, there's a very small relationship. And the thing is, what does curiosity do? It makes you explore something. When you explore something, you're paying attention to it. When you're paying attention to it, it moves into working memory. If it's something that interests you, it moves from working memory into long-term memory. And if it moves into long-term memory, we can say you are expanding, growing, and learning as a human being. Perfect. Great, great point. And on that same topic of curiosity, before I move to other topics, one of the things I did notice in working in corporate America is that curiosity is accepted in younger employees. But as you move up the chain, you're supposed to be a little more conformist. What advice would you give to people on how to balance curiosity and doing well at work, right? You don't want to have a career limiting moment. Yeah, I think you hit something even more important is how do you balance the conformity to make sure that you are accepted so that your managers and leaders like you, so they give you more, more powerful job opportunities, they introduce you to people that have connections that you can actually, for more knowledge, for more mentoring, for more, you know, for more social gatherings where you can form these social networks to move up the ladder. How do you balance that with the countervailing mechanism of dissenting? And especially when the social norms are problematic, especially when there are ideas that you know are problematic or definitely based on your information gathering and evidence that they're moving in the wrong direction. Or when you feel as if the company is having problems when it comes to ethics and morality. So you have to balance this, this sense of conformity and this countervailing mechanism of dissent that happens there, which kind of parallels the idea of being curious and exploratory and engaging in behaviors that are more of the gut and the nuts and bolts of everyday activities and routine mundane things that have to get done. The advice that I would actually give is that you should be cultivating a new sense of who you are a new sense of activities and a new sense of skills that you haven't fully developed yet at all, at all points in your career. If everything you're doing is easy and if everything you're doing is simple and everything is doing it, you don't even have to prepare for meetings. 
you're probably, these are probably indicators that you are doing things that are at or below your, at or below your expertise and skill level. You should be doing things, you should be doing things and entering conversations where you're regularly saying like, huh, I never thought about that before. I'm like, this is like a new skill. This is a new form of technology. This is new software. This is a new app. This is a new approach. You're making cultural references to things that I haven't heard of or listened to before. If you're not saying that on a regular basis, that you're surprised that you're being exposed to something you haven't heard of, you're hanging out with too many of the people that are already been integrated into your sense of self, and you need to start expanding your network and expanding the sources of in, the sources of information where you're gathering and seeking and exploring things. Sure, sure. I want to pivot a little bit to one of the things you mentioned earlier about a well-designed life. And I, I'd like to quote you. You say, my life is devoted to the scientific exploration of uncharted human behavior and its practical applications to improve lives. You've written extensively about designing your life and structuring it in a way that uh, gives you happiness, but also meaning. And you can't be happy all the time is another thing you talk about. How does one go about operationalizing something like that? It starts with the, a great deal of self-awareness and self-reflection. I mean, if I was to work with someone from square one, it would be the first thing you want to clarify is what is your constellation of values that are most important to you? So you could think about this as a pyramid. Right. So you can move from the abstract to the extremely concrete at the most abstract level is we all have a set of values that we care about. So I might ask you, you know, which is more important to you if gun to your head. The valuing of justice or the valuing of creativity. So right away, we're, kind of, we're, we're starting to make decision rules in terms of, OK, the books that you would read, the, the political causes that you would devote yourself to the charities that you would spend your money to or spend your time on, the things that outside of work that you would be do things for for free as opposed to for pay because this is something that's like deeply significant to you. And it's also about the trade-offs, is that the time that's spent trying to be creative, which is the missing part of the equation of creativity, the desire to be someone who produces something that's unique, different, and useful, alone means that you need a lot of white space to be thinking. You've got to be integrating a lot of information, but you also need time to kind of synthesize information so it blends together and, and smacks against each other in unique ways. And then you have to figure out what's potentially useful, what's potentially garbage that I have to toss out. For that part, you need a set of people in your life that are going to be candid enough with you. And you have to be comfortable enough to handle the feedback such that they can say, this is a crappy idea because it's not going to work. This has been done before. This has potential, but I think we need to build this out because I don't fully understand what you're saying. We have to learn how to handle feedback if we value creativity. We have to have a network of people that are constantly challenging us and not just providing unconditional support for us. And we need to be exposing ourselves to ideas that we don't like, that make us uncomfortable. They're people we disagree with. Um, and there are people that are doing things that are basically counterintuitive to what you would think you would be interested in based on your field. Don't just read in your field. Don't just read by the people who have the same political values as you, if you value creativity. So 
first understand to design a healthy life, an ideal life is what your abstract values are. From then you get to these concrete goals, more concrete goals that you can create. What do you want to do in terms of creative? Do you want to speak in more interesting manners? Do you want to tell better stories? Do you want to be producing content in terms of blogs and books? Do you want to be speak? Do you want to be actually doing public speaking? Do you want to create physical projects? What are the type of people you want to be collaborating with? And then more concrete than that is, what are you going to do today? What are you going to do this week? What are you going to do over the next month that happens here? So constructing a life is a complex endeavor, but you got to start with the abstract stuff first, which is what is the, the building blocks, the architectural foundation that you're going to build your goals around and build your hourly blocks around in a typical week. You talked about those abstract values. Now, is that a North Star or can that change? I mean, can it be creativity for five years and then justice in 10 years? So I wouldn't even say they're the North Star. I would say is that those are the principles that would guide what you would find missions and purposes in life. So the North Star wouldn't be the creativity. The North Star would be, okay, creativity is the thing I care about the most. And as a result of that, what do I now want to have as like a long-term mission for my life? So just imagine this. Imagine we chose the opposite. Imagine you chose justice. Well, that doesn't tell you that you should be a criminal justice attorney. It doesn't tell you that you should be an investigative journalist. It doesn't tell you that you should be a psychologist, especially for marginalized individuals. It's just that value can lead to all sorts of behavioral outcomes. And then so it's so the North Star is going to be the very concrete goals, like okay. the central missions of your life that link up with those values. Perfect. And that ties into what career you choose, the people you hang out with, the kinds of activities you partake in. And if they're incongruent, then I think you have dissonance, right? Cognitive dissonance. Yeah, no, it's, I love the way that you're framing this. So one indicator of have you had a good day? Have you had a good year? Are you living a good life? Is, is there a certain level of, of harmony, harmonious nature between your values, your goals, and what a third party would observe if they followed you around every day to see how you spend your finite time, energy, and money? And if, it's, if there's no harmony there among them, that's an interesting indicator of you are probably deviating from a life that would make you more fulfilled. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to talk about um, something that may be a little deeper, but I'll go there. The concept of good and evil, right? I I was reading your blog um, about forgiving people. And then I've also been parallelly reading some articles uh, by the controversial uh, Jordan Peterson. So when you talk about forgiving people, but there's also this concept of good and evil, how do you balance the two? And should you, because you can't always be good, right? Because being good may not really get you to where you want to be. There's a lot of, there's a lot of parts in that question. I mean, so for the last one is we're all flawed human beings and you have, you know, you have a dark side, which is why Robert Biswazin and I wrote a book, The Upside of Your Dark Side. And you have to be aware of this is that um, you have picadillos and quirks and interests that you wouldn't want to publicize on social media and be telling people other than your closest friends, maybe not even your family, and they don't need to know these things. To not acknowledge 
what your proclivities is a big problem. Let's go back historically back to 1972. Go back to 1972 and homosexuality was listed as the number one perversion in a diagnostic and statistical manual for mental disorders. Like it was pretty recent. It, it was very, yeah, very recent. I mean, you know, 1972 is just, just a blip. It was not only a mental disorder, it was listed ahead of sexual sadism, like taking pleasure in physically harming another person. It was listed ahead of it. That was intentional. This is one of the biggest social problems, sort of mental disorders that are infecting and corroding society at its fibers, and we have to stop it. We have to change people to happen there. So if you go back to 1972 and you're told, and everyone, most everyone believes this is a mental disorder. If you were gay and you had these thoughts, you would, and I was having this conversation about how to construct an ideal life. It would be, listen, if this brings you satisfaction and has no impact on other people, you don't need to tell everyone in the world about this. Um, and you don't have that, you don't have to care about this arbitrary authority called the American Psychiatric Association. Live your life the way you want to. Try to do as little harm as possible to other people. Try to take as little offense when other people say things to you. And that would be the thing that, that would be said in 1972. And now we don't have to reveal what those, those things, those behaviors that exist in 2021 that are considered socially inappropriate, considered immoral, but they don't harm other people, and, but they make you feel good. Whatever that is, let that be your thing. So I would I stay, really stay away from the morality of calling something evil because many things that are evil at one point in history, we discover only a few decades later, is something that actually there was there were cultural hangups and culture hasn't caught up to the sheer beauty of diversity and variety in human experiences. Now there are some absolutes in terms of, for example, maybe killing another person, but that absolute immediately has gaps that come in there because if you think about artificial intelligence of designing you know cars that can actually you know run on themselves they have to have an algorithm when they're stuck in a crowded situation that appears out of nowhere they have to make a decision of they're probably go- they, in some cases they're going to have to kill something it's the trolley and the problem. question is yeah but it's it's even more realistic than that, right? Because this really happens. If you all of a sudden a huge crowd runs across the highway, it's not going to be able just the nature of reaction time for a car. Something is going to have to be harmed. And the question is, how do you make that decision? What's the best way of doing it? And we're not going to call it evil. We're going to call it as there is a complex trade-off that has to be taken place. And it's unfortunate that situation occurs. And I think this is something we have to think about in life is there are very few exceptions of pure evil in the world that exists. And I think it's, it, it betrays psychology and it betrays interventions to actually intervene and improve society. When we label something as evil, as opposed to try to understand the motivational underpinnings of what's happening, why, and how is culture influencing our thoughts about this. So in your blog article, for example, you mentioned that forgiving someone is actually a positive thing. And can you kind of explain why? Because sometimes being too nice has not been helpful to me. And so I'm, I'm just trying to see how you can balance being this good person and still 
retaining boundaries. Yeah, I like the language you're using here. So being forgiving isn't about being nice. Being forgiving is about someone transgressed against you. They betrayed you. They harmed you, whether verbally, physically, emotionally. They ignored you. They showed ingratitude towards you when you were pleasant or nice to them that happened there. And for whatever reason, that occurred. And now the question is, what do you do with that psychological experience that lingers inside you? There could be a relationship that's ruptured. There could be a relationship that's terminated. There could be a relationship, there could be a relationship that's actually fully coexisting with these negative thoughts and feelings you're having about them. So there is a place where to say where forgiveness is problematic. And that is when you get into a cyclical relationship, like a domestic abusive situation where, and it's a very unfortunately common pattern where someone engages in some form of emotional or physical violence. And then the next day they apologize and try to make amends for this. And when you forgive them and you don't recognize the pattern that keeps on occurring, um, you, and I hate, I, I want to say you contribute to the problem, but you should not be attributed responsibility that the problem exists. But you are perpetuating the problem by allowing forgiveness in a cyclical manner when that happens, but you're not responsible because you're stuck in a very, in a very difficult situation that is not of your doing that happens there. And sometimes you forgive because you know that physically this is a person that might harm you even more if you were to leave the situation. In general, being forgiving is about untethering yourself to the baggage of someone else harmed you and they are a, a part of your identity. You should carry, you should retain, you should remember, and you should recall easily when you think about yourself. So for all of us that have been bullied, for example, in our childhood years or by right. caregivers or during our teenage years, these many of these characters aren't in our lives anymore, but we the lack of forgiveness makes those events salient. You can imagine them almost like a, like a part of your, the ticker tape inside your brain where it's underlined and bolded and highlighted. And the idea of forgiving is you're removing the highlighter, you're removing the underlines, you're removing the bolding. And it's basically a past chapter two in a 22 chapter autobiography about yourself where it happened. We're acknowledging it but we're not making it the subtitle of our book. It's not going to be this Todd Cashin journey into psychology, someone that's recovered from a lifetime of childhood bullying. It's not going to be the title. It's not going to be a chapter head. It's going to be in paragraph three in chapter two on page 17. And there's going to be no other reference to it. So it's taking your power exists. back. It's taking your power back. In other words. Yeah. And it has, and it has nothing to do with, whether or not you're going to be kind or nice to that person, it's really being compassionate and kind to yourself of acknowledging of bad things have happened and this doesn't define me and it has no impact on my future destiny of what I'm going to, what I'm being and what I'm becoming. Mm -hmm. Another topic I wanted to talk to you about was the pursuit of happiness. I know everyone's on the happiness bandwagon and you talk about why being happy all the time may not be the ideal state to be in. So talk to me a little about your thoughts around happiness, meaning, and how you look at how you construct that life that's happy, but also meaningful. Yeah. So in my science of well-being class just yesterday at 10.30 a.m., we were talking about courage. 
and we were discussing the lives of the terrorists of 9-11. We were discussing Malcolm X. We were discussing Martin Luther King. We were discussing Elizabeth Holmes. And we were discussing the unwritten characters in history mm-hmm. who either gave friction to those characters or were the, the counterparts in their story. You know, the person that discovered that Elizabeth Holmes engaged in fraud, the person that killed Malcolm X, well, I don't even know who their name is, and Martin Luther King, the people that kind of ran on the side of Malcolm X and maybe didn't engage in as, as extreme behavior as him, but actually took from the lessons from him and said, how can I convert these teachings of, of marginalized people who are being mistreated in society and do some healthy modifications in my community, with my neighbors, with my family, where I'm going to call people out when they say racist humor, racist comments that happen there. These are people that are not discussed in history. Only a few characters make it in terms of actually the memorable names that happen there. Any of these people that I mentioned that involve in civil rights, that involve in trying to modify society where a dysfunctional norm is trying to be altered or is trying to be removed that happens there. You know, go back to the, the removal of homosexuality from the psychiatric annals as a mental disorder. Well, all of those characters that fought and successfully removed homosexuality from the annals of being a disorder, every single action that they took detracted from their happiness in that pursuit. Mm. It, was di- it was difficult. It was conflict-laden. You had people that were telling you that you're wrong to your face, which is a hard thing to hear. They're telling you that there's, you are a, a moral failure, a moral failing, that you are the reason that society is problematic. So every action that involves civil rights is an attraction. But in terms of social courage, in terms of moral courage, in terms of a sense of meaning in life, in terms of a, of a purpose of improving the world for the next generation and for improving the world in some capacity on you know the moral arc of history, you're going off the charts. It's definitely going to reduce the amount of times you laugh. It's definitely going to reduce the amount of times that you're, you have a sense of contentment and tranquility. It's definitely going to increase the amount of times that you ruminate about whether you said or did the right thing before you go to sleep. It's definitely going to give you a little bit of extra extra 10 beats per minute in your heart rate when you wake up in the morning and say like, do I have it within me to do this again? Why do I, why does it have to be me that stands up against problematic behavior? These are all detractors from your happiness. And it's one of the reasons why when we think about well-being, happiness is merely one single dimension on a large profile with a lot of dimensions where you have positive self-regard, where you have a sense of personal growth, where you have a sense of autonomy, where you have a sense of meaning in life, where you have a sense of purpose, when you have a desire to develop a sense of mastery and increase the amount of skills that you actually possess. All of these dimensions, often when you pursue those other ones, pursuing the incre- an increase in skills and an increase in meaning and an increase in positive self-regard often means that you're going to take a hit in happiness on that journey. Okay. I love that. And part of this is being self-aware of what you want and what you're doing and seeing if they're harmonious. And I've read a few books on psychology, by no means am I well-read. I do remember a framework called the Johari window, where they talk about what parts are open and what parts are hidden. And it's a two by two matrix. Now, 
are people born self-aware or how do they develop that self-awareness? Is it through feedback loops? Is it through tests? Is it through reading? All, all of this entire framework that you're giving makes perfect sense. It's basically, you know, all of that and more. I mean, and one thing, temperamental-wise, each of us are born with a genetic predisposition to engage in certain personalities as opposed to others. You know, there's um, some kids are just born with a little more of a cheery disposition, and some kids are born with a better, a better self-insight into why they, why they do the things they do. Some kids are born with more self-restraint, where they have the desire to hit somebody, but they <laughs> just about to, and then they kind of bite their lip and kind of hold back a little bit. And other kids are more impulsive. Kids are more agreeable. Some kids are more disagreeable that happens there. We have individual differences and it's beautiful in terms of self-awareness and self-insight. It Can it be cultivated? Absolutely. And we could even see plenty of educational psychological research shows that kids, adolescents, even adults who go to community college, I mean, you have a greater development in terms of your morality and your understanding about the perspectives of other people from going to school. And when you find that those adults who spend, spend multiple weeks, not just trips, but multiple weeks living in another country, that they show an increase in perspective taking. And part of an increase in perspective taking is to be able to realize is that my view about myself, other people in the world is unlike people who live in a country that's a little bit more collectivistic, where uh, people's identity is partly defined by what do their friends do? What are their siblings like? What do their parents want for them? Whereas someplace like here in America, our identity is independent, where our parents might think that we are highly intelligent and self-assured and ex extremely high in self-control, where we, with our friends, know that we are incredibly playful, incredibly disorganized, and incredibly quarrelsome when we interact with people and incredibly witty, but they don't see that part of our personality. And in an individualistic country, you would focus on what your parents don't see. And in a collectivist country, you would define yourself by what your parents anoint you as to happen there. And when you're able to spend time living in another culture, you gain that greater self-awareness by seeing there is another entire way of viewing who you are as a person and your identity. And it's a very powerful thing that we can learn. So we don't just have to learn from school. We can learn from just spending time with people that aren't like us. And this is at the heart of why cognitive diversity is so important. It's not just because of it looks good on the front cover of a magazine. It's not just good because there's better decision-making because you have more views at the table. So you have more input to consider when you're making a decision. It's also about you view yourself differently. So the information that you accept, and the information that you question, and the information you discard is going to be modified by seeing other ways of viewing the world. It's very interesting you mentioned the individualistic and the, uh, the collectivist society, because I did grow up in India before it became modernized, before internet, and then I came to the U.S., and certainly I've been exposed to two very different cultures and my identity, I think, has also evolved uh, just because of that. And who I was and who I thought I was was shaped very much by my family, by my extended family. And here I am um, very much an individual, right? So I don't think I'll ever be completely divorced from my childhood, but I can see the changes. 
And it's interesting you mentioned that because my daughter, on the other hand, is nothing like me and she will not be told what to do. I, I see a lot of differences. And although I think I'm an evolved person, I will tell her sometimes what to do and how to behave. And it does not sit well with her. And I can see the cultural differences. And I think it's, it's interesting. I didn't actually put those two together, but it is extremely interesting to say the, see the impact of your childhood on your identity. Yeah, I'm curious what collectivist tendencies you're trying to instill in your daughter that she's not getting from being oh, the oh. next generation. For example, when I have a party at my home and I have people of different ages, usually I call people that are my friends, but sometimes even their parents and their children. She does not want to be in a party with my friends. She's saying, oh, those are your friends. Why should I be in a party with your friends? And I don't know what to say to them. I would not have said this to my parents. I would have liked being part of that community. So I feel like it was much more community oriented. So it's more about her, her friends, her interests. It's not about the community. You know, it's, it's interesting that you say that because I think when I, when I think about what is it that as an American, we're a very ethnocentric culture. We tend to think of ourselves as a superpower. We're called a superpower. What can we learn from other countries? And you hit one of the, to me, one of the biggest lessons to learn from from India and other Asian cultures that are more collectivistic, which is that we are such an age stratified culture. And as a result of that, you don't have 20 somethings hanging with 40 year olds. You don't have 40 year olds hanging out with 78 year olds, except for the idea of it's almost like a mandated thing of I'm going to come in, feed you, take care of you. And then I'm going to do my business and have fun with people that are in my cohort, my age cohort. And when you get to the question you asked earlier, which is about how do you construct an ideal life? Well, one of the quickest shortcuts of figuring this out is spend time with people that are older and wiser than you because they've lived a longer life and say, and see like what paths did they attempt that were, they found were to be unfruitful and which paths if they, they find to be more valuable in terms of an intrinsically interesting and rich for them. And then if you could learn from them secondhand, you have a shortcut where you don't have to make all the, of the cognitive and social errors that they made in terms of choosing your own path. But when we're age stratified, everyone's learning in the most inefficient <laughs> way possible. Trial and error. We're all learning the same exact lessons um, if we don't spend time with people that are older than us. Yeah, I think history teaches us lessons we would not uh, learn on our own. And, and I think for me, um, learning from history, but also learning from psychology has been truly interesting. I'd love to hear your influences. Who's influenced you in your life from whether it's other psychologists, other books, other people, your mentors, uh, give me a sense of how you've got to where you are. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of characters. I mean, the first person that pops into my head, which is not rank ordered, Rick Snyder, who passed away, he was the, the founder of Hope Theory. And I met him he was part of the, the very first symposium where I gave a public presentation in, in science in my career. I think I was a first-year graduate student. And he was like a heroic and amazing and prolific and distinguished. And I remember I gave my talk and then I sat down next to him and he put his arm around me on stage and it was a packed room. 
was also Robert Emmons was there as well, who's also an amazing influence, who's a huge gratitude, the, the gratitude researcher who created gratitude interventions, which have taken over all of society. And Rick Snyder put his arm around me and he said, listen, when they finish here, they're not going to know who's the grad student and who's the professor. He's, and he said, he said, don't pay attention to the flaws that you had, because that's not what the audience is attending to. They're attending to the full gestalt of what you did. You're going to, you are going to leave this room. And this is all happening on stage while other people are talking. You're going to leave this room and you're going to pick up where you made ums and ahs, where you misstepped, where you forgot, I got details, where you didn't mention something that's wrong in your life. Nobody's going to care about that. Everyone's going to just pay attention to the general, like a general three sentence summary of what you did and what you did was great up there. And it was such a powerful moment of, he basically short circuited exactly the self-critical pattern that would have happened if I walked off that stage, if he didn't do it. And I always think about it, the small number of words that a mentor can give you. And then here I am now it's 23 years later. And here I am like, I still retaining that exact details of what he said. I, I could short circuit a pattern of dysfunctional and destructive behavior that someone can engage in just by spending a few minutes with someone that happens there. So there's a lot of characters like that. Chris Peterson, before he passed away, I met him as a grad student. He was, this was when he was going to create this book called Character Strengths and Virtue Handbook. Uh-huh. And he was going to kind of be the anti-DSM. It was going to be here across time and history and culture. What are the fundamental core strengths that we should be developing as individuals and communities and in societies? And I said, who's, write, who's writing the chapter on curiosity? And he said, we don't have anybody yet. This is at a lunch. And Chris Peterson, again, distinguished, big guy. He's like, you think you could write it? I said, I could write it. Wow. Like, if you believe in me, I could write it. And, and I, he gave me the opportunity to solo write the chapter in that book of this Character, Strengths, and Virtues handbook on curiosity. And he just took a chance. And again, it's a very lasting influence on me of you will always underestimate the potential of what someone can do if you haven't seen their work yet. So focus on what are the qualities they have, not what their output is. And I think the mistake we often make is we want to find little versions of us who have resumes and CVs that are as long and distinguished to, to before, but they have to start somewhere. So every surgeon has to do a cut for the first time where their mentor isn't there. And you hope that it's not your eyeball or your lung that ends up being the, the recipient of that. But everyone, so we have the opportunity to actually give that give the platform for that young scholar, that young thinker, that young innovator, that young entrepreneur of this is going to be their first shot where they get the stage and make sure that they appreciate of Listen, have this opportunity, use it. Don't put the pressure on them, but, but remind them the value of having this opportunity so they, they treat it with a level of solemnity. Todd, what is your superpower? Uh, focus the opposite of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. I can stay on task for hours at a time, forgetting that I have bodily functions and I have to wow. eat, sleep, drink, and go to the bathroom, whether it's a 10-hour conversation or 10 hours straight of writing. It's my superpower. Wow. That's a great superpower. Yet in your blog, you talk about the, the usefulness of novelty in a person's daily life and how it can actually help you. How do you balance those two concepts? I'm a collector. I collect interesting people, 
um, who from all walks of life, I, I prefer not to hang out with other scientists. I prefer to hang out with, you know, pilots and engineers and- You're like me. Um, I love that too. Yeah. You, you know, painters, substitute teachers, volleyball players, soccer coaches. I mean, it's just, it's just I, you know, I don't want to hang out with similar crumbs of myself. I've never found that enjoyable. I've never liked having one single group that was my social group. And so the social world has always been where I generally collect my novelty. So the novelty doesn't come in, in the path of your focus then, because it's not concepts that are novel, it's people. Is that how you parse it? Because if you're going down a path of focus and you're writing, for example, your new book, right? The Art of Insubordination. You were probably focused on it night and day when you were writing that book. Where did you find the place for novelty in that time and in that space? Oh, it's there. I mean, this was five years straight that I was working on this book. So, I mean, I was in Sri Lanka talking to people in terms okay. of people that were store owners, you know, and I was in Cambodia talking to tour guides. I mean, people that were running rickshaws and asking them questions about, you know, how do they respond when, you know, someone's in their rickshaw and they're, and they're, they're rude, disrespectful what leads to great tips? What leads to bad tips? I mean, how do you question someone? What type of behavior would make you stop the rickshaw, eat the cash, and tell them they have to walk out of there, right? Like dissenting and defying from an unacceptable social behavior. So all of those social interactions provide all sorts of novelty of, of how you can see the world and what makes people successful at dissenting and what makes people unsuccessful. And you start to learn patterns. And you, you match what happens in the real world with the research. And sometimes you realize the research hasn't caught up to reality, which is often, almost always the case. And sometimes you realize, wow, this research really informs how to craft better messages so that even though I'm in the minority, either numerically or because I don't look like everyone else in the room, how can I craft the message to be the most effective? The science helps form reality. So it's this reciprocal relationship between the constructs and the science and really seeing like actually, the actual testing of these ideas in the real world, going back and forth between them is where you get the novelty. I love it. I, I would love to incorporate more of that in my life. I think it's so cool. Now, do you have a book that inspired you? And the second part of that is, give us your recommendation for the top three books um, around well-being and everything you learned from, including your books, of course. I don't want to recommend my own books. Um, I mean, Carl Sagan, I met him when I was at Cornell before he passed away. When I was in college, he wrote and published. Um, I'm going to get, I'm going to, I'm going to mess up the title, but science is a candle in the dark mm -hmm. and demon haunted world science, de the demon haunted world science is a candle in the dark. And I read that when it came out and it had a profound influence on me. It's, I mean, and it lasts the test of time. It's basically essentially is, we need to walk through the world as healthy skeptics, as opposed to accepting ideas just because people that are popular, people that are likable, people that are, have power, they said this is what to follow. And I have lived my entire life really have an automatic default of questioning authority in terms of what they're saying until I actually carefully scrutinize and interrogate information and the evidence. And, and that even goes for, you know, the Dr. Fossey, the Sanjay Guptas, you know, whoever's the president of the time for whatever political party, whoever's the head, the deans and the presidents of colleges and universities, whoever, whoever has the title of eminent scholar, 
my automatic response is they have so much power and influence, they can say anything. And so are they as careful as someone like myself, who just some young kid from New York who kind of was like to work out and decided to go to grad school and get their PhD? Will they, will they have as much, as much concern and much concern about being precise and getting things right? Because once you get power, you get looser because you realize no matter what you say, you're going to get incentivized of you said something intelligent and wise. And so you are, there's a disincentive for doing the extra homework than, you know, the 23 year old that just starting to work at Google. And, you know, you, you learn all that from Carl Sagan's book, Demon Haunted World. The other one would be Irving Goffman, mm-hmm. self-presentation in every everyday life. This was from the 60s. He's a Canadian sociologist. Okay. Again, can you repeat that? Oh, Irving Goffman, self-presentation in everyday life. Mm -hmm. And it's really a treatise of, is that you can view our entire world as from the metaphor of being a drama where sometimes we're on stage and we're presenting ourselves in a certain way to win, to curry favor, or actually to curry criticism. You know, we we mentioned kind of the Dave Chappelle show very briefly in the beginning of this. That was intentionally designed to curry criticism because that's on brand. That's how you get attention and kind of to these issues that happen there. You know, we have to pay attention to what what are the motivations that are guiding people's behavior and not taking guesses at these things. And sometimes the beauty of really close friendships and relationships is you can go off stage and hang out in the green room and take off your wig and take off the makeup and take off the clothing and take off the persona and actually just be. And it's really, to me, when I read that book, it just reminded me of what is the the number one characteristic to me of a healthy relationship? It's when you can be effortlessly yourself. You're off stage and it's rare, like really, really rare, especially in an age of social media. And so that would be one of the, the books I recommend. And the third one would be this, I mean, you know, I can recommend thousands of books, but the third <laughs> one would be The Blank Slate by Steven Pinker. Oh, and wow. it's just a wonderful, wonderful book about that we do not come into the world with, and you, you kind of asked a question about this earlier, about to what degree is curiosity almost like, are we dissuaded from being a curious explorer of the course of time? The Blank Slate this really is saying is that we come into the world with a lot of software and a lot of hardware. And we have to be aware is that we cannot be fully modified into a perfect personality prototype. And that level of, um, that level of diversity that exists in the human species and in, and in groups is something that we have to honor is that we have mechanisms in terms of the moral dimensions that, drive us to experience disgust and drive us to experience awe. A lot of that's influenced by biology and upbringing and and we are not perfectly sculptable into anything. And if we understand that, we can have more compassion for people that we disagree with and dislike at first sight. Well, love your recommendations. And I will also put in the show notes, your books, Curious Upside of Your Dark Side, designing positive psychology yes an art of insubordination which is coming out i am super excited about that book and we will do another podcast just focused around that book but can you give us a sneak preview of what that book is all about yeah the art of insubordination how to dissent and defy effectively this was basically i synthesized 60 years of research of what it's like 
um, to try to respond when you feel that the status quo, the mainstream is engaging in behaviors that you find to be uh, problematic, dysfunctional and difficult. And this is basically a, a guidebook for activism. It's a guidebook and the activism is not just about major causes such as trying to reduce racism and sexism, trying to increase gender equality. It's also about individually. I mean, how do you respond when people mistreat you? How do you respond when, pe when you are not getting a healthy dose of rewards compared to punishments in your social world? Like, how can you improve your identity and improve your psychology so that you can resist the influences of being guided to behave in ways that are unlike what you want to be and what you desire to be and what you deserve to get in the world? And, and how do you get love, affection, and space to be creative and curious in the world and create that space for yourself. It requires us to be assertive. It requires us to be willing to challenge, question, and stand up against authority figures and other people that are providing unnecessary and unwarranted barriers to our well-being. Excellent. I am looking forward to reading the book and discussing the book at length with you. Where can people find uh, you? Where are you in the social uh, world you can find me pretty much everywhere it's pretty much my name twitter at todd cashton my website toddcashton.com i'm pretty easy to find and every all my books are available on amazon barnes noble and anywhere else you can find things as we close i'd like you to give me a, a picture of how you see the future of work evolving from your standpoint I think work is going to evolve in the same way as personalized medicine, is that we are going to be much less inclined to focus on here are a standard of tasks and rituals and guidelines for the group. And we are going to do a much better job um, at the beginning as we onboard people into organizations or wherever people work. We're going to be doing a much better psychological assessment of what are the conditions that make people work at their best? What are the conditions where people perform poorly and how do we pull out people's strengths? And this is gonna mean from the simplest way, it's gonna be the idea of some people are larks and they're better at working at night hours as opposed to day hours. And some people work better for two hard concentrated hours a day as opposed to a 40 hour work week. And other people don't wanna take vacations because their work is their calling and their purpose. And I think we have to, this personalization of, the work environment and how you're being led is what I hope is going to be the future. And I think it's going to be the future. It's going to be hard though. It is going to be hard. And I think we can check back in a, a few years and see if your prediction came through. <laughs> Thank you for your time, Todd. It was such a pleasure to have you here. Yeah. I love the questions you asked. So I will definitely come back and do long form with you. Anytime. Thank you. Take care. Yeah. Love this. Bye. Love it. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Change Alchemist with Todd Cashdan. If you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend, follow me on Twitter, and do write me a review wherever you get your podcast. And be sure to tune in next week for another exciting episode.